Hey, good morning and happy Sunday. This is PFG Live and it is uh, January 21st, 2024, a very significant year today. Uh, welcome to Almost Machining, who's reporting 54 degrees and rain in Surprise, Arizona. Is that a surprise? Lunchman84 has, a, I think that's a cat in a box. Welcome aboard, sir. In the Discord server, we have uh, Unix Carbide. Welcome. Tux Garage, Justin P, Widget Works, CJ Stevens, Smith of All Trades, Almost Machining, Robert Simpson. Uh, let's see, Daniel Fl Florescu. Oh, don't move. You're moving on me. Scott M, Belloni, and Blake Terzini. Welcome and good morning. Uh, Joel L reports 57 Fahrenheit and the rain has stopped in Chandler, Arizona, the melter of PLA. Well, good morning. Uh, we had cold <laughs> last night was cold and we started burning in the fireplace and, uh, it's still, it still continues. Um, we are, we're burning right now. There you go. And we are keeping an eye on it, making sure everything is, uh, is uh, appropriate, but it was down to single digits. And today, right now in uh, the Windham, New Hampshire, it's 23 degrees, 54% relative humidity and the winds are out of the Northwest at 12 miles an hour. Who else do we have here today? Hey, art that makes art is here. Wes, it's uh 44, mostly cloudy in South central Idaho. Welcome, sir. CJ Stevens reports. It's up to 25 degrees right now and very sunny in East Tennessee. Welcome. Robert Simpson reports 20 degrees Fahrenheit clear and covered in ice just North of De Detroit. Uh, it's so cold in the shed. You're doing something wrong. Can't post in discord. I don't know. Uh, you're not doing much wrong. Hang in there. We'll fix you. Unix carbide reports 30 degrees Fahrenheit in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. And welcome. Let's see. Um, gotta get out of studio mode so I could read. Justin is here. 30 degrees Fahrenheit, cloudy in Florence, Montana. Welcome, sir. Tuck is reporting 26 Fahrenheit, cloudy with one foot of 100% humidity on the ground. Excellent. In Buffalo, New York. Um, Widget Works reporting minus 12C in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Big thank you to Widget Works for uh, some goodies. I will talk about them today. Scott M reports 15 Fahrenheit in Peoria, Illinois. Awesome. Hey, flat lappers here. Guten Tag. One, four, mostly sunny, 21 miles per hour from the north, Illinois. I assume that means 14 degrees. K-Bonk says he woke, woke up at 21, warm and sunny. Now it's 32 in the Philadelphia. Welcome, sir. Nice to see you. Well, it is beautiful. It is sunny. Uh, it just got really mighty cold. So we started um, burning some uh, some tree carcass. You could learn more more about that in the tree carcass channel on our Discord server, and uh, we're keeping up. Uh, so, <laughs> so Unix Carbide is correctly and properly doing work in the shop while he's listening to this, and he said he got so excited that the show started that he broke a drill bit in the work. I'm sorry. We can't help you with that. Ugly Skull has shown up at 73 degrees Fahrenheit at 3 a.m. Clear and 
starry skies. Do we have to figure out where you are now? 3 a.m. Where are you, Ugly Skull? Help us here. You always have to report your position so we know where you are on the radar. Uh, it's been a cold but busy week. You guys came out in uh, in throngs for Mr. Tom Lipton, and it was appreciated. He had a re- he really did have a good time, I have to say. So that was nice, um, and we enjoyed having him. So this week, you got me. Uh, we have a couple of topics today, but first, I want to report on one of our um, our Adafruit feathers that is measuring temperature and humidity. We have four of them deployed right now. And one of them, uh, two of them are running on 1200 milliamp hour LiPo uh, rechargeable batteries. And one of them died uh, a few days ago. That was the one in the shop. And that had been running continuously for two months, reporting once an hour to our, to the server. And it finally died and it went back to recharge. It's recharged, it's back in service. So we have sort of a data point for that little program that was running, once an hour reporting, um, and it lasted two months. So the you may recall that we have a couple of those out there and then we have a, a, one of the units is an 18650 LiPo battery, one of those cylindrical batteries. And that sucker, we are predicting six months on that battery. Oh, that's right. Ugly Skull is in Bulacan, the Philippines. Welcome aboard, sir. Clear and starry skies. Um, so uh, that's sort of the update on the on the uh, data collection project. We're looking forward to uh, the second unit dying. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Looking forward to the next unit dying. But we have a twin to the one that ran out of juice that should be running out of juice any day now. And then we'll we'll have that data point also. So what else is cooking in here in uh, in in news? Um, we um, we had an interesting event. I don't know if I uh, I don't think I had a chance to tell you last week. Oh, so Tuck's Garage asks: Does the cold in the shop affect the shop battery life? I assume that affects my my predictions. So. Actually, the shop is not allowed to go below uh, 50, I think it's 50 degrees. Um, And it also is sitting on a piece of concrete, which is part of the foundation. So it really never gets that cold. I think that particular battery was only getting down to 55 degrees. So it's not horrible. Does the cold affect it? Yes. I could tell you that from from my electric truck. Um, But... Uh, I don't know that that was a big deal in this particular case. And the other ones are all in basically warm places. Um, Does the report provide a state of charge in the report? Um, Yes. So the units, uh, the feather uh, boards have their own battery monitor. It's not awesome, but it does report battery uh, voltage and battery percentage. We kind of ignore the percentage, but the voltage is an accurate number. So we did, we, we have this on the, uh, Adafruit, uh, Adafruit IO server, and we could, we could show that plot one day, but, or if you want, I'll send you the link. You could follow along. And, uh, we watched the batteries decay and voltage. It's actually pretty linear, which is, uh, 
potentially useful. And we watched it drop off the face of the earth. It was one of the two lowest battery voltages that we were clocking. So it wasn't a surprise, but the other one kind of kept on, kept on going. Yeah. I'll, and if I forget, Joel, let me know. And I'll put the link up for the Adafruit IO. It might be in the links page. I don't remember if I put it in there. Um, yeah. So K Bonk, are you on your hand, on your tool, <laughs> on your hand tools? Uh, do you, do, 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 does anybody have a correlation between like the, their, uh, lithium batteries on their, um, the Waltz and Milwaukee's and such and the cold temperatures? Because I really don't, the stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't get too cold. I don't leave it out in the shop, in the truck. I leave it in the shop. So we'll keep you posted on that. But the next step in that whole project is, is making a couple of housings that are a little more ready for normal deployment and maybe even displayless, which might save a little bit more battery. Yeah. Out in the truck. I would imagine that if they're, if they're left out in the truck, it's not great. Oh, uh, you have a report on, so, so, uh, Unix, you can give a video report or you could just give a text report. Um, you have a Ryobi 18 volt router, cold video is easier. I'll come up on a video. We'll put you up on the, on the thing here. Hang on. I'll go clickety click. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Unix carbide, Unix carbide. Hello. Oh, hi, 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 hi. So this so, morning, uh, ran outside in the cold to do the street carpentry thing, uh, with a Ryobi 18 volt, uh, router. They were the first ones to make a cordless router. It's a beautiful yeah. invention. Um, cause boy, router, wood routers make a lot of material go everywhere fast. Um, anyway, uh, ran outside with six sheets of plywood, uh, cut, but, uh, big, big guys, you know, four, four foot max length, uh, to do a bunch of just quarter inch chamfering on the edges real fast, went out with three batteries, uh, because I know it was cold and I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was probably about 20 degrees when I went outside, it's warmer now. Uh, the first battery around the first piece, maybe 48 inches, another 20 inches, another 40 inches. The battery just, the whole thing just stopped. Wow. I stopped for a second. I'm like, is it already dead? Turn it off and turn it back on. Came back on. So what I think was actually happening is that the load and the cold and the change in the battery Mm. was tricking the circuitry into thinking that the battery was actually discharged faster than it was when it was under load. So I think it was a circuitry and design problem mm-hmm. uh, because they didn't expect me to be out there with my five-year-old Ryobi uh, chunk of junk uh, at 20 degrees uh, trying to get a bunch of plywood chamfered. So you don't think it was just, it, it, you, you had the feeling it was not a battery chemistry problem. It was a combination of things. Follow-up then even brought them back in, cleared myself off. The things had enough time to kind of acclimate to the room, warm, nice and toasty in here. And uh, check the battery button on the side, and one that died was half half full. The other one that died uh, was a little less than half full. Threw him back on the charger. Didn't care. I have I have a thing about battery charge indicators because if the battery charge indicator has literally integrated all the current going out and measured the temperature, blah blah blah, that's one thing, but if the battery charge indicator works on voltage, which 
if it was cheap and stupid, that's what it would do. That's no good. So I'm a little skeptical about battery charge indicators. Yeah, uh, yep, yep. But thanks for the report. That's interesting. That's the, that's the only report. And, and and indoors, indoors, you've never had that kind of an issue. Oh, I'm not using the routers indoors. No way. Too much. Oh, no way. <laughs> By the way, I have to give you. I no, have to I give, have not indoors had that kind of problem at all. So I got to give you some credit because you, you posted some photos. I think it, it might have just been on the Discord of street carpentry. <laughs> And it was magnificent, you know, go outside, do your carpentry on the street. Uh, and for those of you who, who aren't familiar with Brooklyn, uh, it's the city. And if you're familiar with Jimmy DeResta and some of his early stories, same thing. You're in the middle of the city, you go out, you make all the dust outside, you go back into your, into your shop. So yeah. that was pretty impressive stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a pretty, pretty lousy way to work on when it's 20 degrees outside. So when it's 20 degrees. My whole life this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your report, sir. I appreciate it. Talk to you later as you were. Okay. <laughs> uh, K Bonk asks, is Ford giving you lightning updates? So uh brief update on the Ford F-150 lightning. Everything's cool. Uh, so to speak. Um, it's cold weather behavior has been fine with a caveat and the caveat is when it's sitting in the driveway it is plugged in so even if it's single digits out and i go outside usually i will start it remotely and and get that going and then i will go outside unplug and go about my business and it's been fine but it's had a chance to quote precondition um which is a good thing in cold weather so i have not let it cold soak on its own you know, with, without being plugged in for a long time and then go and, and, and look at things, but their, their onboard computer in the F-150 also does a bunch of calculations. Uh, so when it tells you, it, it tells you a state of charge, which I'm sure it did a lot of work to get to that number, but it also tells you range and it does a lot of work to get to that number. And they're very reliable. Um, I find, um, and CJ Stevens says, I have to bring my truck power tools in, uh, in winter. I learned that expensive lesson. Yeah. Um, don't forget that batteries are a chemical process and chemical processes. They want to stop when it gets cold. <laughs> so, uh, that is, uh, that is potentially a problem. And don't forget the old trick. You could put your, put your batteries under your arm to warm them up if you need to, um, just, you know, take precautions. Uh, let's see. Scott says, when I would do field work, I keep lithium batteries in a hard shell cooler to keep them insulated from the cold, easy to bring inside. Some tool manufacturers put the charge indicator in the tools instead of the batteries. The ones with tool side indicators are utter garbage. The manufacturers with battery side are a little better since some of them integrated with the safety circuits and thermal sensors. Neither are fantastic. So my argument is that a charge indicator has to be married to the battery, must be, because after the battery is all charged up, um, you can measure current over time. That's charge, right? Current times time is charge, literally in physics, right? So you could measure how much current has gone out, but as soon as you remove that battery, that information has to go with the battery. So there is no such thing 
unless there's some data communications, there's no such thing as a charge indicator on the tool that will survive a battery change because it has to know the history of the battery. Anyway, there you go. Um, and we, we did what we came for here today. CJ Stevens says, thanks for the cooler idea. So there you go. Um, gee, I didn't expect to start with batteries this morning, but, uh, yeah, we, uh, we depend on them. Uh, let's see today. We're going to talk about a couple of topics. Uh, the first one I want to get, uh, get to is, uh, euphemistics. So euphemistics is, de is de defined as the, uh, science and practice of, uh, creating euphemisms for things that we don't actually want to say. So my good friend, uh, Adam Demuth made a magnificent video about, uh, machining, uh, the, the hardware associated with a piece of precision hole punching equipment. And, uh, the, the video platform that we are on right now, uh, decided that that was, uh, a violent of violent nature. And it, and that video went down. So, uh, that video is now hosted in, we immediately hosted that video, uh, follow the links on our links page, pfg.gg slash links. Uh, but also good news, uh, Adam now has a Patreon, uh, page and th that video and other videos and other stuff is coming. We talked about that a little bit this morning is now on his Patreon page. So if you do go to, uh, our videos link, pfg.gg slash videos and see Adam's, uh, link, I added his Patreon link right there. So go support Adam. Uh, you don't have to pledge any money. It's totally free, but that's where that video is. Um, and, and you could enjoy that. So we'll talk some more about, uh, uh, the euphemisms we have to use around here, but for us, uh, precision hole punching is a natural, uh, uh, requirement for precision machining. I think you'd agree with that, wouldn't you? And whether the, uh, precision hole punching is powered by electrical means or, uh, chemical means, it doesn't matter. It, it's all about the precision and, uh, that's, that's what's important. And you'll see some more, uh, applications and practicing of euphemistics, uh, later today as we go along, because we are after all machinists. Uh, so let's see, currently at the Manchester airport, winds are three, two, zero at two, zero gusting two, six knots, pretty windy, 10 mile visibility, clear temperature minus zero four dew point minus 16 altimeter three, zero one, four. The peak wind was observed as three, one, zero at two, six, 26 knots. And that was at 1848 Zulu. Um, Robert Simpson says reaming holes raises eyebrows in the wrong circles. That is true. Even if this it's circular in, interpolation, you'd have to agree with that. Wouldn't you? Um, well, we, uh, we, we enjoy reaming holes and I'm not going to apologize for it. Sometimes the spiral ramers are more appropriate. So, um, the main topic that I thought of this week that I wanted to talk about was aluminum. And, uh, because I've, one of the things I've run into is 
the misunderstanding or the misapplication of different aluminum alloys. So I've taken some time over the years to understand which aluminums are out there. Art that makes art. Wes, he's, uh, Wes says, uh, I reamed 300 holes this morning. Good for you, buddy. Wow. That's, uh, that's a lot of endurance. Do you use, do you use uh, coolant when you do that? Um, and I assume that was in the CNC machine. I hope that was in the CNC machine. Uh, oh, here's a, here's a real a WD-40. Oh, really? So you, you were working um, manual. Uh, here's a question for you. Uh, how are you holding the, the reamer? So I've learned a few tricks over the years, and I'm, I'm very interested in learning more. Because we want the reamer to align with the hole. We don't want the reamer to, to define the hole. We want the reamer to um, follow, the, follow the hole. Uh, that would, you know, that does the best job. And Robert Simpson asks, water or oil-based lube? This is important. Because a water-based lube can wash away easier than the oil-based lube. So if you need it to stick around longer... You want to use the oil-based lube. Um, so a trick that I learned, and, and I unfortunately cannot report to you that I've done it, is to, you know how reamers come with the very long shanks? So one of my mentors said, if you grind a groove, a deep groove around the shank in two places, you, you give the reamer a little flexibility to track the hole and you just hold it, you just hold it uh, right at the tip. You just hold the tip. Okay. And now when that reamer goes in, it can literally move. Uh, it has two places it can bend and follow and follow the hole. I wonder if anybody has done that. Um, I know there are uh, reamer holders for CNC that allow some float. Uh, I've never owned one. I, I have something similar on the lathe, but I, I don't like it. Almost machining says, yeah, it also brings up floating, uh, floating reamer holders. You never know what we're going to talk about here. So let's talk about aluminum, shall we? So, uh, throughout my, uh, relatively short machining career, I've been through a, a whole bunch of different aluminums. And I think I started to understand uh, how to design with the different alloys. And um, I wanted to just talk about that a little bit. So I grabbed, I went down to the shop and I grabbed some some aluminums. And if, if you will allow me, we'll just kind of walk through them a little bit and, and talk about each of them. I think you, you guys in chat, what would you say is the number one most common aluminum full stop no questions asked. What alloy would be the most common? Yep, Robert Simpson's right on it. 6061T6. Yep, everybody's got it, right? So I think we could all, <laughs> everybody had the right answer. Hey, Robin's here. Hi, Robin. Robin had the right answer. Of course, Widgetworks had the best answer. <laughs> Technically incorrect, but he said beer can. <laughs> that might actually be the most common aluminum in use. Okay. 30, 30, 30. K bonk. That was well done. 
3030. Uh, Nicely done. We'll talk about that in a minute. Foil. So, okay, Unix carbide. We're going to talk about aluminum foil today. Uh, Scott says, it's not the aerospace grade aluminum. Don't laugh. I, I ha I've learned things about, <laughs> about this stuff. But yes, and here, if you're on video, you get the, uh, the pleasure of seeing an example of the 6061 aluminum. This happens to be a plate. I think this is 3 16ths inch plate from a project, and I just grabbed that off the rack. So yes, 6061 aluminum is probably the number one most common aluminum known to man, uh, and it is in the 6000 series. So let's, uh, let's pick another one. Um, okay, if I say sheet metal, if I say sheet metal, what, what uh, type of aluminum comes to mind? Excellent. Oh, Robert, are you sitting on your keyboard? Robert says 5052. Joel says 4043. The winner here, I'll give it, I'm waiting for one more answer. Come on, you could do it. You guys don't know what you're going to win. That's the whole thing. CJ Stevens says 7075. I have never used sheet 7075. Um, <laughs> okay, my answer to that is 5052. So 5052 aluminum is, I have found uh, amongst the most common in sheet metal that is going to get bent and otherwise sheet metaled. Um, Joel says 3003. Excellent. Novice Artisan says 69420. Now that might be a legal answer, but I don't know where. Uh, let's see. Okay, so what what aluminum? Let's see, somebody mentioned aluminum. CJ Stevens said 7075. So I'm just going to show you. There's a chunk of 7075. We're going to talk about 7075 today. Uh, again, pulled off the rack. And I don't remember exactly which project that was from, but 7075 aluminum is another one. Robert Simpson says 5052 is great for enclosures and engraves wellish. Yeah, that's where I have it from is uh, making enclosures. I don't do a lot of sheet metal bending here, but um, I have I had a little bit of it from some project. Um, let's see. Oh, I have another example. I forgot that I grabbed this. 6061 in plate. Uh, now, if you look, if you're on video, you can see these markings. It says 6061-T6511, which is a secondary specification. I don't think we'll talk about that today. <laughs> um, okay, here's another one. When you think of expensive aluminum, <laughs> or you think of really nice to machine aluminum, what do you think of? What's good to recycle using a home furnace? Um, 6061 will melt nicely in a home furnace. Oh, wow. We have a, we have a tie. I'm sorry. We have a tie. Widget works. Robin says 2011. That's interesting. I think it's, that's in the ballpark, Robin. It might even be more expensive than what I'm thinking of. Joel says 2024. Widget works says 2024. I was thinking 2024. So here's, here's a chunk of 2024. Now, one thing I found interesting about 2024 is that when 2024 comes in as a billet, 
it has this very interesting, if this was steel, I'd call it mill scale. I guess it's still mill scale. It's got this dark color to it. The air, the air cave shop. Welcome aboard, sir. Late to the party, but late is on time around here. So it has this different color to it. Of course, when you machine it, it also has a different color to it, which I like a lot. So, um, 2024, my favorite aluminum and my favorite year. And finally, I have an exotic here that I've shown on, uh, on Instagram, but I don't think I ever identified it because I made some parts out of it. And this is 7050. So 7050 is, if you look it up, <laughs> you'll see aerospace grade. And in fact, this was a gift. I got a big chunk of this as a gift from somebody from a uh, unnamed aerospace company. And this was actually very nice to machine. Although it's interesting, I saw some, um, so if, if you go back on my posts and you look at this fixture I made to hold magnets in the grinder, I made it out of aluminum and this was the aluminum. Well, I'm getting some very interesting corrosion, which was at the interface, at the, at the outline of where my vice was grabbing, uh, the block of aluminum. I can't explain it, but it's also the first time I ever used the 7050. So let's talk a little bit about what all these aluminums are. Uh, did it say T7? Oh yeah, it did say T7. And by the way, that is that is what it is. It is actually 7050 T7. If you think that's weird, you are correct. <laughs> it's very weird. And I can't discuss where it goes. Um, almost says the heat treatment is important as well. And he says galvanic corrosion. Yeah, it it was weird that I got that corrosion. It also didn't impact my my use of it. So the trick to understanding aluminums is understanding these four digit numbers. And the first digit tells you the major chemistry of the alloy. And that's sort of the most important number. So let's just walk through all of the series. So the first one, it's pretty obvious, is the 1000 series. So the number would start with a one and then have, have three more digits. Anything that starts with a one is, is called essentially pure. And it's 99% or greater aluminum. And um, like I've heard of, uh, well, the, the, the lowest one they list here in this particular table that I have is 1050, which is 99.5% aluminum. And it's used for, for places where the aluminum has to be soft, uh, drawn tubes and stuff like that. So that's the 1000 series. You could think of it as essentially pure aluminum. And then the 2000 series, which I've already told you is my favorite. Uh, does anybody know what the principal uh, characteristic of the 2000 series is? What is the main alloying ingredient? Any of you guys know? Robin is on it, of course. Robin, you are correct. Copper. So the 2000 series has copper. Joel L. got it also in the uh, in the YouTube chat. So uh, yeah, so the copper is the main alloying ingredient in the 2000 series. And I think uh, the 2024 is the most common uh, of the 2000 series that we see. And in this particular chart, um, it says it's universal. That's code for 
you can actually buy it. But um, Robin mentioned 2011. So let's just let's just take a look at this. 2024 is 4.4% copper, uh, 0.6% manganese, and 1.5% magnesium. That's actually a pretty significant amount of magnesium. 2011, has, oh, look at that, 5.5% copper, 0.4% bismuth, and 0.4% lead. Who knew? Um, so, Robin, where do you see 2011? That's interesting. Um, anyway, the differences between all of the alloys are, are just the, the ratios of the minor alloying uh, elements. So the next one up is, oh, yeah, sure. Hang on, Robin. I'm going to turn you on here. Let's see. I think you could turn on your video. And I got to hit this button here. And uh, welcome aboard on a Sunday, Mr. Robin Renzetti. How are you? Excellent. How about yourself? Doing great. So tell us about 2011. Uh, part of my... Um... Uh, machining history is uh, being on the ground floor of uh, making diamond rotary dressers and doing it by the reverse plating method. So having a material that is very free machining um, and still electroplatable is uh, very important. So mm -hmm. 2011 is, you'll notice the lead in there, that mm -hmm. lead is behaves just like the lead in leaded steel it makes the machining extremely, extremely nice. So um, I've bought lots of bars of six and eight and 10 inch diameter 2011 uh, <laughs> that we made rotary dresser blanks from. So you've basically super precisely machined the internal contour uh, of the diamond roll shape with all the compensations for the plating bath temperature and where the aluminum temperatures at uh, when the nickel is formed and then the, basically to get this back after the mold is removed, you mount the you electroplate, put diamond in, electroplate nickel on the inside, thick shell of nickel, then you mount a hub in it. And then when you're all done, you machine off all the aluminum as close as possible and then use a caustic bath to remove the rest. But you're after the end result being extremely precise, requiring very little fine adjustment. So that's where I know 2011 is like, magic that's, magic machining stuff that is an awesome story that's pretty cool i know that the 2024 machines gloriously it doesn't have lead in it but it also is just fantastic for threading the nicest threads in aluminum i've ever cut were 2024 um can't explain it but it was good well thanks for that story it's it. one of the things that's interesting is if you've machined the individual things like machining uh, like tin bismuth low melting alloys or you've machined magnesium, the kind of crispiness or you, you kind of get a feel for the texture of the material, how it actually crumbles, the chips form and all that. And some of those things make sense. 2024 has kind of a crispy feel compared to 6061. Uh, and, and that makes sense with the you know magnesium content and those things. And, and the, the lead obviously makes perfect sense in the 20. Uh, 2011 in that it makes it just machine like butter. So I, I, if you asked me if there was an, if there was an aluminum alloy that had lead in it, 
I don't think I'd ever heard of it before. So that is an eye opener that it has a little pinch of lead. Um, and just scanning down the list of other alloys, there's one with zirconium in it. Wouldn't have expected that, but there it is. Uh, lithium. There's some exotic stuff in this two th in this 2000 series. Pretty cool. Well, thank you for the story, sir. We may we may have to call on you again. Thank you. <laughs> I'll send you back to the uh, the finger sandwiches. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. That was that was awesome. So that's the 2000 series copper. Uh, let's see. Uh, the next series, the 3000 series. Uh, anybody know what the major ingredient is in the uh, in the 3000 series? Anybody? Oh, Robin's on it. <laughs> you were pre, you were ready. You knew I was going to 3000. So 3000 series. Anybody in on the YouTube side? No. Okay. I, I waited long enough. Manganese. 3000 series is mostly manganese. And the most common one there that I'm aware of and in its top of the list is 3003. And, and I have a piece. I actually have some 3003. So the 3003 was of interest here because it was formable and, uh, and weldable. So we, we haven't talked about weldability, but the 3003 is formable and weldable. So, um, my kiddo, Sam, who you've met on this very channel is doing a project in armor, uh, medieval armor, except made with modern materials. And I recommended, uh, the 3003 series of aluminum for that project. So 3003 is actually here in the shop and we were going to run some test beads on it. That's coming up. So that is 3003 is mang, uh, manganese 1.5% and copper. Oh, it crosses the line. Copper 0.12%. Pretty cool. And it says here universal. That means you could buy it. Sheet, rigid, rigid foil containers, signs, and decorative. Pretty cool. Okay, coming up next, the 4000 series. Oh, here we go. Uh, Unix says, jokes aside, regarding heat treating aluminum for the uninitiated, is there any aluminum which is intentionally heat treated after machining? What about other cool heat things with aluminum? That's a good question. So... Um, well, know. Robin, do you, do you have any stories about heat treating after machining, heat treating aluminum after machining? No. Okay. <laughs> we, we tried. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I would assume that there's going to be some situations where the material might walk. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. If you use just lift up blocks of metal for the demo they said it would be easy they said if you if you use uh 6061 aluminum um <clears throat> for example we use this stuff all the time it's like jelly beans right easy to cut all that stuff however this is an extrusion and you can you can kind of tell by the lines you see these lines like this so this is extruded out of a uh, uh, a machine and in fact i've got a great story about this in the town, next town over that I used to live in, in Pelham, there was an extrusion plant for aluminum. 
and it was called Wakefield, Wakefield Thermal Systems, and they made extrusions. So I called them up one day. This is a good story. I called them up one day and I said, hey, I, I make antennas and we use, make them out of aluminum. And every time, uh, every now and then we need an extrusion and I'd like to learn more about your capabilities. They said, come on down. So I went down there. They gave me the full tour. Well, they used electric and they had electric extrusion furnaces that would squeeze out like toothpaste from a, from a toothpaste tube, aluminum at just the right temperature through custom dyes. And, uh, they had a, I think a nine inch, I'm going by memory here and a 13 inch machine, which means they could have a 13 inch diameter extrusion die. was pretty impressive and they were right by the border of New Hampshire and Massachusetts which has a there's a point to that part of the story too so I asked wow if I walked from here to the next place that has a 13 inch extrusion machine where would I be and he said Tennessee he didn't mention CJ Stevens by name, but he did say Tennessee. And that's on the East coast. That's where the next 13 inch extruder was. And they had a, a warehouse. So they had the extruders at one end and they had, you know, those, uh, you know, those, uh, conveyor, uh, conveyor belts that have all the rollers on them, you know, the metal rollers, it, they had a football field worth of those things and these they would pull stuff at, literally pull stuff out of the extruders and it would just ride down these these uh, conveyor belts for cooling and then they uh, they would cut it up and then they had uh, heat treating rooms for the for the aluminum it was really impressive and i said to him and by the way i want to point out how this is marked um Oh, CJ Stevens says it's, it's in Alcoa about 45 minutes south. You see, there it is. Who knew, who knew that back then when that guy was telling me Tennessee, that you and I would be having this conversation. So this says service center metals, and then the designation 6051, uh, 6061 T6, blah, 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 and a lot number, right? Well, at some point I learned that service center metals was kind of code for whoever we can get it from. <laughs> well, so I said to this guy at, at Wakefield, and by the way, they, they have since shut down their operation, which is a bummer. Um, I said, who do you sell to? And you guys are going to love this. He said, well, about 75% uh, of our output goes to McMaster car. <laughs> Like really? So they, they made a lot of extrusions for McMaster car, but also they made custom extrusions. And the data point that was really interesting in that particular story was I said, how much would it cost me to, um, get a custom extrusion die and then have you make custom extrusions for me? And at the time, which admittedly was easily 15 years ago, probably closer to 20 years ago. He said, well, it would cost about $3,000 to get the die made. And then it it's two bucks a pound. <laughs> it didn't matter what it was. It was two bucks a pound. And I thought that was the world's simplest, uh, formula. And I never actually 
you know, pull the trigger on a custom extrusion, but, but there it was and it was right down the street and now it's no longer right down the street. So that's a little story. Oh, I, I was getting to the punchline. So if you look at the end of your extrusion, you guys should be visualizing that there are stresses in the skins of this extrusion that don't exist in the center of this extrusion from the extrusion process. So if you ever take a piece of, of extruded aluminum and you, for example, fly cut the type, the top of it, you're going to end up getting, and, and you, and then you release the, the, the vice, it's going to smile. And so what you have to do is, is, you know, cut the top and then flip it over, cut the bottom and, and get the stresses out of it for the thing to calm down. And that's because it's an extrusion. Uh, the extrusion builds in these stresses and they're in a pretty predictable uh, way. Um, what about, uh, Unix Carbide says, what about engineered aluminum extrusion, hollow inside? Same thing. It, it, there are stresses on the skin, the skin of the, uh, extrusion and, um, yeah, 2020 and 4040, not to be confused with alloys. Um, those shapes have the same problem, but they're, they're usually intended to be extruded, chopped and used. And if you face one side of it, yes, you're going to release the demons. Um, and it's not going to be flat anymore. Did I say flat? I said flat. So that's, um, that's, so we see these things in a lot of different places. I just bought some of these, uh, shaft collars, uh, on McMaster car. These are 2024 aluminum. And quite frankly, I looked at them and I'm like, yep, that's 2024. Nice and shiny and bright. Um, and, uh, and they're aluminum. So they're very light. Um, Kbonk says, I got quotes. You can have anything extruded for 5,000 pound minimum. Oh yeah. I, I do remember there was a minimum and I don't remember what the minimum was, but yeah, 5,000 pounds is a lot. I think it was a lot lower, uh, back when I talked to these guys, but it depends on the company. So yeah, there was definitely aluminum. So there's a, there's a real piece of, of, of 2024 from the wild, right? Um, Here's a piece of, of, uh, this is a piece of 7075 from the wild. This is a magazine holder, magazine holder, get it. Okay. That's only 80% complete, but you put, you roll up magazines and you put them in here, but this is 70, this is a casting 7075 casting. Okay. And why do they use, why do they use 7075 in these applications? By, by the way. Uh, I just, if I can just on a personal note, John, John Saunders, you, you actually have to watch the video. I'm not going to explain this to you. Okay. All right. So, so why would you use 7075 in this application? And the answer is 7075 by the numbers is the strongest aluminum. So there's a problem. And, and this is what I wanted to get to, um, my buddy has a sailboat and we used to joke that my company Antenesis was in the machine shop had a sailboat maintenance division because I used to make parts for him. So one year Dan comes to me and says, I need 
Oh, Robin says, I don't think 7075 is a castable alloy. Um, well, I'm just going with the information I have. I, I know it's 7075 and I know it's a casting, so I don't know what to say. But we could research this. I'll take this as, as homework. Is that okay? Okay, take it as a research project. You won't hate me? Okay. So, so my friend Dan calls me up. He says, listen, I need a new step for my mast. So this is like, this is like a shoebox that the, the, the mast lands in on a sailboat. Um, forging. Okay. Did I, maybe I got my, my words wrong. Maybe it's a forging. I, I'd buy that. I'm looking at the marks. Anyway, so Dan says to me, uh, it has to be strong. It used to be cast aluminum and the casting is in pieces. So I said, I know what to do. We'll make it out of the strongest aluminum. So what do I do? I go look up the strongest aluminum. Forging. CJ Stevens says uh, that magazine holders are generally forged. Okay. Uh, and this is this is made in, in lower Brooklyn. So that's why they're called lowers. Um, and so I we got a block of 7075 and I, ma I machined out the pocket for the bottom of his mast and we put there was some other threaded features on it. It was great. And off it went into the sailboat. Then we learned about corrosion. So uh, we actually had it. Did we have it? Uh, no, I don't think we had it um, anodized first. No, we did have it anodized. We sent it off for for anodization, um, and and we hard anodized it. So it turned out that the somebody that was advising me said that the uh, that these things get hard anodized. So I said, oh, we'll hard anodize the seventy seventy five. Well, I'm here to tell you that seventy seventy five in the bilge of a sailboat will find a place to corrode and the main alloy ingredient we never got the 7075 did we no i think we got we got off track so let's um let's get back on track and when we get back to the uh the uh 7000 series i'll i'll finish that story because it was interesting i don't think we got past the 3000 series um let's see 4000 series give me an example of 4000 series Somebody did already, actually. Who was it that said 4043? So what's the main alloying ingredient? Yeah, absolutely right, Robin. 7,000, this is a spoiler, is, uh, is zinc. Um, so the answer is 4,000 series is, let me just double check it before I say it, and we'll get this wrong. I don't want to get it wrong while Robin's watching me. Is silicon. Ah, widget works. Got it. Lovely. So uh, 4000 series is silicon. And the one that I know of from 4000 series is 4043. Looks like the simplest one, which is a, a, a filler rod for welding aluminum. Paul Morley is here. Welcome aboard, sir. Um, 4043 is 5.2% silicon. And that's it. Very simple. And that's, uh, that is used as a filler rod. And I don't think I've ever used any other 4,000 series for anything else. And if anybody has, let me know. 5,000 series, magnesium is the main alloy ingredient. Anybody have, um, so 5052, which is our, which is our sheet metal, 
is 2.5% magnesium, 0.25% chromium, and that's 50-52. And let's see, 6,000 series, that's the big one, right? 60-61 uh, is the most common one. I've seen 60-63 in sheet metal, and it says here that the difference is it's cheaper. <laughs> 6061. Here's the recipe for the aluminum we love. 0.6% silicon, 1% uh, magnesium, 0.2% or 0.25% copper, and 0.2% chromium. That's a lot of ingredients in 6061. 6063 is 0.4% silicon, 0.7% magnesium. And that's, uh, I've seen that in a, in a mostly sheet form. And, and what other 6,000 series have you guys used? Widgetworks says 4032 is common for forgings. Yeah, I'm looking at the list and I don't think I've ever used any other 6,000 series. No? Moving on, here we go. We arrive at 7,000 series. So 7,000, we already gave that one away. Main alloying ingredient is zinc. Evils has shown up. <laughs> Welcome aboard, sir. With a weather report that basically says um, everything's fine. <laughs> I can't read your. I can't read your report. Uh, I could read your temperature is 20.8. That's the joke. Okay, I get it. You do, you're reporting in furlongs per fortnight. Is that what you're doing? CJ Stevens says 4043 as filler. Yes. And 4032 as forgings. Excellent. So the 7000 series is mostly zinc. And 7075, there's our favorite. Zinc, 5.6%. Uh, manganese, 2.5%. Copper, 1.6%. And chromium, 0.23%, and it says aerospace and forgings. So I said casting, shame on me. What other 7,000 series have you guys used? Now, I just showed an example of 7050, which is listed as aerospace. Um, yep, 70, Joel says 7050 is the tougher version. Yep, I have my last little chunk of that. Um, and going down the list... I honestly don't think I've ever used any other flavor of the 7000 series. CJ Stevens says 5356 is a filler that can be anodized. Yeah, I seem to recall that. That's the second choice filler for aluminum welding. Am I right? Robin 7178. Yes, uh, don't get confused. Widgetworks is correct. 7000 series is not a weldable alloy. Okay. Now we're, Robin says 7178. You're going to make me do work for this, aren't you? Uh, do you have a story about 7178? I can't hear you. I can only see you. So just nod your head if you do. I'm bringing you in. Stand by. Robin has a 7178 story. Welcome aboard, sir. Way Wrong back uh, when I was a young um, working on my helicopter, I was looking at all the alloys, and the alloy that's stronger than seventy seventy five is seventy one seventy eight. 
but good luck trying to buy it. But it technically is a little bit stronger than 7075. You kind of buried the lead when you said working on my helicopter. I think we've talked about that before, but it, it maybe I forgot. <laughs> Was this a model helicopter? Uh, yeah, I think one of my early Instagram posts was uh, showing my uh, helicopter parts that I was machining yes. while I was in my apprenticeship. And um, got it. So I was, I was, uh, yeah. That's why I was interested in the in the alloys. So seventy one seventy eight is stronger than seventy seventy five. Wow! And just for completeness, seventy one seventy eight is six point eight percent zinc. 2.7% magnesium, 2% copper, and 0.26% chromium, and a pinch of oregano. Thank you, sir. Okay, so that's the 7000 series. Kind of weird. Uh, Joel says the temperature capability of 7000 series is very poor above 200F. I. Um. Yes, Evil's, Evil's got the reference to the helicopter. So uh, the 7000 series, when I talk to uh, some folks, so we're back, to the, we're back to the sailboat, okay? And we learned pretty quickly that the, the original anodize, I think, that we did on the 7000 series was insufficient. We went back next season, literally, pulled it out of the bilge. We had it hard anodized using the same exact process that are used for these for these uh, magazine holders, okay? And that was better. Uh, and the corrosion basically stopped. Uh, but then the next season, uh, Dan pulled it out again and we apply, he applied a uh, epoxy coating, epoxy paint coating. So we had 7075 hard anodized epoxy coating. And I'm here to tell you, <laughs> it, lasted now that that thing is in service and it's been doing fine but the corrosion issues with the 7000 series is significant so you can't you can't pick an alloy willy-nilly you have to ask all the questions and if you get spoiled by 6061 because you know you could leave it out in the weather and nothing happens to it you will be you'll have a rude awakening with uh with 7075 so that that leaves one more family that I absolutely have never touched. And that is the eight, uh, sorry, where is it? The 8,000 series, just listed as other elements. Um, and there is a, about a half a dozen, uh, features here. Has anybody ever used an 8,000 series aluminum? Paul Morley says, 100% cotton and some wool. A Seinfeld reference, which escaped me. Sorry. So the most interesting of the other uh, other alloys in the 8000 series appears to be, this is weird, 8019. 8019 is 8.3% iron. 4% cerium and 0.2% oxygen, probably to keep the iron busy while nobody's looking. And the uses is just listed as aerospace. 
has anybody touched an 8,000 series aluminum? I know I have not. That's crazy. So we went through the list. That's all the uh, aluminum families, and we touched on a few of the of the key ones. And then the, there's the special casting aluminums, which we're not going to get into. But what a what a crazy list! I will I will show you a, an example. Here's a if you're on the video. This is a uh, an antenna that uh, I designed a number of years ago. It's a vertical antenna. Uh, for the um, Argos system. It's a very wideband antenna, 270 megahertz to 470 megahertz. So the bottom part is sort of the mechanical part where it gets clamped. Uh, there's a couple of O-rings. It holds the connector. There's a lot going on here. There's a, there's a glue joint in here. So the bottom was made out of my favorite 2024 aluminum. Uh, took the threads beautifully, uh, just a nice, strong aluminum to work with. And then the top was just a cap. And it didn't have any major structural requirements. So we made that out of 6061. But it's just an example of, you know, you got two different places that have to do two different things. And in this case, we chose two different alloys. You could make the argument that if we were running thousands and thousands, thousands and thousands of these, it would be worth keeping them all in the same alloy and you'd, you'd enjoy some economic benefit. Um, <laughs> Evil says, for those without video, it looks about as close as you're going to get to a lightsaber for an antenna. Yeah, well, I don't know if this would be called a lightsaber. I haven't uh, activated it yet, but you could hear the crystals in it. Uh, anyway. So that's the, that's the aluminum story. I thought we should touch on that and maybe one day somebody will come back to us with some stories about aluminum. Okay. Um, let's see. I, I wanted to share with you another topic that is, is sort of near and dear to my heart. And that is, I like, uh, I like, <laughs> my name is Spencer and I like tools. Um, sometimes I will buy tools off of eBay or off of, you know, the local, um, buy, sell trade groups on Facebook, um, because I want to grind it in. I want to re I want to restore the tool. And, um, I've done that. The, the vice on my grinder that has gotten the most traffic of any of the vices, um, that I use was, I got it off eBay and I, I thermally treated it. I cryo treated it. I ground it in. So all the major work was done and it's beautiful. Uh, but the, my favorite tools that I get off eBay are tools that the, the maker puts their name on. And it always makes me wonder, um, you know, how, how this tool left this maker's toolbox and ended up being sold. And I, you know, naturally sometimes the story is going to be that they passed away and their stuff was sold off, uh, or given away or whatever. But for example, I just showed a, a, a couple of tooling blocks from, uh, from an artisan whose name is, or was B E Dietz. And there's his name beautifully done. You know, maybe sometimes these are, um, these are student projects and the student doesn't go into tool making or 
we don't know. We don't know. It, it's kind of one of the mysteries. Uh, this particular set of blocks I did, I haven't touched yet, and they're gorgeous. So I haven't had to do anything. Um, some of the some of the tools I get off uh, these things, eBay or or whatever, uh, are clearly student projects. <laughs> K Bonk says Robin was Boeing in Folcroft, Pennsylvania. Boeing or Sikorsky when you were building that model chopper. He, I'm, I'm sure Robin will answer you in the in the thing in the doobly doo. So here's another here's another angle. Uh, this is a right angle that I got off of eBay, and this is obviously all ground in because I ground it in, and it's totally usable, totally accurate. But if you look really close, you'll see that um, there's some little weirdnesses to it and it was probably a student project but now it's a beautiful tool and i use it i use it in the shop when i need a, an angle just that big um here's another one this one's a little bizarre it same flavor i think i bought these at the same time it's it's an angle um but on one side it had this big major uh fillet um on it on the corners which i left but again, I, I ground it in, it's accurate, it's useful. And all of these things, if they cost me 20 bucks, it was a lot. Um, this is one of my favorites. It's another pair of what looks like one, two, three blocks, okay? Uh, it does not have the maker's name on it, but they're hollow. And I love them because you can get a clamp in there uh, and it has some threaded holes and it's really useful. There's the name of probably the owner, but also probably the maker, RGS. Who is this guy? We have no idea, but their tools are still being useful in my shop. And then just this week, I posted this on Instagram. I picked up another angle. I guess I like my angles and, uh, it's, it's actually gorgeous. Uh, yeah, the hollow art that makes art Wes loves the the hollow blocks. Here's one. Uh, this gentleman or artisan, as I like to refer to him, T. Capozzoli made this beautiful angle. And I'll have to, I have to tell you that when I unwrapped this thing, it was pretty rough. It looked, you know, it was kind of rusty. It's got a little corrosion on it. And I have stoned it mostly to get the witness marks to tell me what's going on. And I have to tell you, from stoning it. I also hit it on my Lapzetti plate a little bit, but after stoning it with the PFG stones, it looks really good. You can kind of see it on the video. Let's see if I can get that in focus for you. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty darn flat. So this is my next, my next project when I, when I'm bored, I also dropped a hardness test on it and it came up as a Rockwell C61. So isn't that beautiful? And I picked this up for $10, <laughs> 10 bucks and shipping. The shipping was more than 10 bucks. Okay. And I'm very happy to have gotten it. So if you, if you're of a mind to, especially if you're a, a, a grinder hand, um, you could pick these things up for, for small money, spend a few minutes grinding it in. If you have a cylinder, a, a cylinder square, especially for the angles, you can, uh, you can bring it into, you know, the perfect 
And, uh, and there you go. There's many more examples of these downstairs in the shop. Um, and yes, I might have a problem. They're real useful and I love using them. And I, I particularly like it when I'm using a tool that the maker put their name on. I like that. So K-Bunk says you might know his son, huh? <laughs> hey, Shaden, HKW, welcome aboard, sir. Rehabbing rusty junk off of eBay is a very valid way to collect tools. Thank you, sir. I feel validated. Um, I, I hope I see, I don't want to think of myself as a tool collector. I know I do a little bit of it, but I want to use them. So I try to, I, I, I try to put them to good use. Okay. Does anybody <laughs> prices have just doubled? Yeah. You know, that's okay. I think that's, that's fine. Go, go spend a couple of, so instead of, I'll tell you what, if I had to spend $20 to get this instead of $10, that would have been okay. Is it, it is interesting though. Um, anybody else have questions, topics, snide remarks, um, recommendations for restaurants, anything at all? Cause we're at the top of the hour plus a little bit. And, uh, by the way, I've been, I've been really enjoying your series on the, uh, on the paint booth. Uh, that has been an absolute adventure in, uh, in every single different, uh, problem <laughs> in every single different, uh, way of, uh, manufacturing. <laughs> Indiana is not recommended. He says, uh, oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. I, I, there's one more thing I have. Yeah, widget works. So, uh, I want to uh, say thank you very much to widget works for sending me some goodies. So one of the goodies he sent was a, a flag. It's going to be a wall hanging. I'm going to save it for when it's up. I don't want to spoil that one. And he also sent me some, uh, some carbide, uh, strips. He said these were wear strips. I don't know exactly where they're used, but they're definitely carbide and they're heavy. Um, and my goal is to do a little bit of, uh, playing around with them and maybe turn this into a Kiridashi. Um, and, and by the way, for the YouTube sensors, Kiridashi is a type of sushi, right? Yeah, that's what it is. So thank you very much for these little goodies. And then the funny thing, let's see if I can grab it. Widget works. <laughs> he had these labels made up because, you know, if you have a CNC machine and you have the red button and you have the green button, sometimes they, the labeling wears out, especially if you use it a lot. So he, he sent me some, uh, some labels to replace what, what might be on the machine. So there's a red one and there's a green one. <laughs> And the green one says, this is for the podcast guys. The green one says crash start. And the red one says crash hold. <laughs> Thank you very much. Widget works. I appreciate that. And by the way, they, they have uh, quality 3M adhesive on the back. I just want to point that out. Uh, that was very funny. And then, and then a little flag, which uh, is going to be up in the shop and I'll post pictures of that. Thank you for uh, uh, skating in at the last minute here, uh, Stan. Thank you, Widget Works, for the goodies. 
Uh, Robin, thank you for your commentary. I sure appreciate it. Uh, I want to say uh, thanks to everybody who showed up. We'll see you guys next week. The guys in Discord are Justin, Widgetworks, Evils, Smith of All Trades, Almost Machining, Robert Simpson, Daniel Florescu, Scott M. Belloni, Tux Garage, Unix Carbide, and of course, Robin Renzetti. Appreciate you being here. Uh, Stan says, sorry, I missed most of the show. I don't know, Stan, you might've actually gotten the best part. It'll be on YouTube. Uh, don't forget that this was brought to you by PFG Stones, who reminds you that we wish your radius of curvature to be infinite and of first order. Take care, guys. Get flat. Stay flat. We'll see you next week.